The Q Affair. Part two, the Q Woo. While some similarities to living people may exist in your mind on reading this novel, it is a work of fiction. So it's your problem if you have people like this in your life. Chapter seven. With summer arrived, I had a lot more to do outside that kept me occupied and happy, like hiking on days off, going further afield to explore wilder parts where I could feel even more alone, to feel less alone, with my bike loaded up with sketch pad and paints or a book and some sandwiches and coffee to keep me going until the evening when I headed back home, maybe with a decent sketch or perhaps with nothing of much use to show but a smile on my face and a happy song to belt out as I cycled. If my legs still hurt too much from standing to be this enthusiastic, I could usually get enthusiastic about cutting the grass in the garden or seeing how my few vegetables were getting along, or just lie on the grass with my belly out like a stranded seal taking the sun in. I'd had a boyfriend for a while, a recently divorced man I'd met in the restaurant, but it hadn't worked out, and we'd nothing much else in common to talk about. He read books, but didn't talk about them either, and just seemed rather passive about life generally, for my tastes. I couldn't detect anything you could reasonably describe as a personality there, and he was uninterested in my YouTube Second Life tales, or anything else I did. So I'd sometimes felt lonely in the relationship, and trapped in the gap of misunderstanding that only grew wider as time went on. We started drifting apart as I thought up more excuses to go places on my own. After it turned out, he liked staying in far more than he liked going out and was making me feel like he was doing me a huge favour any time he'd arranged to get the car out, contingent to the weather being ripe for him. He didn't like rain, and the beach was out if there were clouds forming. After arranging a time for an excursion, he liked to wait for the perfect weather conditions before making the final decision for both of us. He didn't mind if I was disappointed at not going after all. I grew to quite dislike the man as time went on, and I got to know him better. While not enough to see a reason to ask him to go away for quite some time. Until, finally, one day he announced we'd be lonely without each other. As someone whose loneliness usually only showed up when he was around, or when I was forced to be in the company of people I didn't have much in common with for too long, which was anything over an hour or two, present charmingly quiet company accepted, dear reader, I could spend days in your company without feeling I was suffering you. I saw red at this presumption about me, and got rid of him that day, although he sort of came back quietly again somehow after a while, and used to drop in for cups of tea daily whenever I was working in the restaurant, and sit drinking tea while I cleaned up, saying, wasn't it nice to have tea together still, like friends? I hated it, and fervently hoped that he would take up with one of the grey country women that frequented the restaurant and smelled of cabbage. But of course, they were as quiet as him, so unlikely to approach him. 
Me, I'd only picked him out as a boyfriend in the first place because he was from the city, which I missed at first. And because he told me he was an avid reader and it struck me that I might like it again, having someone to, as we Irish like to obliquely put it, heat the bed up a bit and banter about books with. I know, I do silly things sometimes. Hindsight is a great thing, but not terribly useful at the time, I find. We'd gone to the beach regularly in his car, however, when we dated, and that had been a wonderful break from staying close to home, as I'd always loved swimming. I miss swimming and the car, but not him, when he was gone, although I sometimes saw him at the shop and said hello. The relief when he was sent on his way almost made me feel guilty until I realised that I had felt some sort of weird guilt all along about not being able to make him happy. I could see in hindsight that it was something he carried in him himself and it had emanated from his person like a wet blanket sending out a dampness that can be felt in other parts of the room on a chilly day or the cabbage smell I felt followed me home until I washed and threw my uniform in the bath after me to rinse and wring the stink out of it. And it was a burden that he was not ready or willing or able, whichever, to put down and definitely had not wanted to talk about being a man who didn't talk except of football much. Perhaps he was not initially even aware of it until I raised the topic. In fact, I'd liked his quietness at first, before I'd started detecting the heavy atmosphere around it, thinking it might denote deep thought, then realised much later that he emanated a quiet depression that he hoped I would never try to penetrate or understand. Any attempts to communicate in what I thought a real way had been shut down by the suggestion that I thought too much. Well, perhaps so. I do like thinking, and now that I was free again, got over the vague guilt of leaving someone who had eventually told me when pressed that he was perfectly fine as he was and didn't want me to try to change him. He was right, I thought. I don't want him to change if he doesn't want to, and I don't want to talk about it if he doesn't. I just want to be on my own again, away from the heavy feeling he admitted which was at its worst at moments when I was happy and came out in little remarks which showed he resented my happiness and wished I wouldn't exude it so much either. I'd started to feel resentful myself sometimes when he woke from a nap on the sands and looked at me like I was mad for my smiles at the beach at no particular thing at all but the sun on my face at my favourite place while drinking hot coffee and having a cigarette after a cold swim in the ocean, still shivering at the thought of how the cold water had felt, like sheets of icy silk moving over my body as I swam with my face down in snorkel mask, gliding along above the shoals of tiny fish and around the luminous strobing purple and blue glowing jellyfish lazy, lazily floating or propelling themselves through the swaying forests of tall seaweeds like little spaceships or following their stately moving disco lights beneath the surface 
light and shade dancing over the whole scene in the most beautiful way. The odd crab hurried across the stage floor of the enchanted forest. Like a heavy-handed moving stone, delivering an invisible meal somewhere into the forest on a transparent tea tray, appearing then disappearing as suddenly to blend into the lichen kitchen behind a seaweed curtain again, scrambling into holes between the rocks when your shadow suddenly loomed above in the spotlight of the sun, or avoiding my magnified giant's toes when I paused to clear out the breathing valve or shake out water that had started to fill my mask before stooping to resume my observation of the delights below the shining surface. When I'd moved away from the human bustle, I suppose YouTube provided some bustle for me to watch. And here were these wonderful wild compensations too. Far from the madding crowd, in the fresh air, suited me perfectly on those days off and I was happy. Being completely alone, I found myself happier still. Getting older does that for you more too, because you aren't doing all the striving anymore, just the settling into your life like a favourite cardigan that's getting old but comfy from wearing so often, as it becomes familiar with your curves and lumps and shapes itself nicely into them as you sit by the fire, reading and snoozing in bouts of cosy pleasure. You find adventure and comfort equally charming and hopefully find a balance between them that makes you start to feel at home in your life and deeply content in your middle years before the slow creep of your dotage sets in with presumably the creaks and crumblages to announce the new guest's arrival. The death threats I had received didn't continue. I suppose they felt the effects would last a while and they would be spoiled rather by asking, well, did you get my message? What did you think? I did, however, get people in my comment section or sometimes in my chat being distinctly ratty with me. I found this particularly noticeable on videos where I was showing any happiness. I'd started doing the odd video upload instead of live stream with little bits of footage I'd shot outside since I figured the area I lived in wasn't all that identifiable and it was so pretty in the summer. If I showed a picnic or a bit of a view from halfway up a mountain or a hike, the thumbs down would go crazy in the video to reflect the displeasure that life would allow such a monstrous stalker troll to have a happy day. I had some nice people in chat too at times, people I'd met through Desiree when she'd randomly added us to a gang together for turning up on her channel and saying something she didn't like. Some of these had drifted off, but a few stayed. There were a few Discordians as well. I could recognise them from their avatar names usually, and they were always good-humoured and easygoing. They'd arrived via my blog, I knew as I had the ability to see where the traffic on the blog came from by looking at an analytics panel that told you how many visitors to your blog you'd had that day or week and what countries they'd come from. Because I was now writing about Discordianism, they were taking an interest in the blog and my videos, 
which I sometimes link to from the blog if a topic like meditation or YouTube goings-on was covered by me on both YouTube and in a post together. Discordians came from all parts of the globe, although Brazil seemed to feature strongly in the group I joined for some reason, and I didn't translate many of their posts, although I gathered there were a few sci-fi writers in the group. There weren't that many blogs writing about the topic of Discordianism online generally that I could see, or not quite like mine anyway, talking about it in relation to some of the stories going on in YouTube and how Discordian narratives were behind them. In fact, I couldn't find anyone writing about it in relation to YouTube at all. I gathered, though, that it was a big secret as they used a novel to refer to the fact that it was not to be talked about. Although I hadn't read the novel, Fight Club, I'd seen the movie, and there was a secret club in that only talked about inside the club when the members were together, as they didn't want others to know what they were up to. That was easy enough to understand in relation to the numbered clue documents I'd seen it referred to in. Although why the secret club was running about all through the truther part of YouTube took a bit more working out, and I was still puzzling over a lot of it, as it raised a lot of further questions, the more I sat with the idea, doing that thing I loved doing, thinking, or just sort of letting it wave about a bit, like the seaweed in the underwater enchanted garden hoping it would come into focus when I'd cleared the mask enough to see it magnified and whatever things were hiding came out and showed themselves a bit clearer. I was posting links to my own blog posts in their Facebook groups as well to get more traffic to my blog and it was working. I started making up hashtags for Twitter too to see if that added more viewers to come along to read my posts or look at my videos or just read my tweets. I did tweets just for fun too, playing with marketing ideas, things like always posting old 70s disco or funk dance videos on Saturday nights with hashtags I'd made up, added to their Discordian hashtags that they were pushing so that they'd see my tweets and click on the video links, or on Friday nights, I'd post a free movie I found a link to online, stick that up on the blog, and tweet about that. I got a small following, and enjoyed knowing that someone was reading what I'd written on the blog, and even turning up on my videos, sometimes to chat and see what I was up to. I had a YouTube and blog life quite apart from Desiree's Madness but wasn't above having the odd laugh at the madness too. I knew the Discordians enjoyed the joke and were in on it. This was pretty much their oeuvre after all. I got a few invites to join other blogging platforms arrive in my email via the blog site and took up the Discordians on an offer to post on their website that they extended to all their group members with the option to click a button to become an editor on the blog if you were already a group member, and sometimes I posted links to my relevant blog posts there, or reblogged a post there, if it was about Discordianism, and I thought they'd enjoy the humour. The other invites to different platforms I turned down, as they either had interfaces I didn't like, favouring brief posts, 
with no videos able to be linked to, or because they were making use of Bitcoin purses to vote for posts. People liked. And I didn't want anything to do with Bitcoin, which many YouTubers were pushing on their channels as the currency of the future that you should really invest in now. But I saw as just as suspect and undesirable as credit cards in my mind, being an old school type gal myself who liked the idea that I was trying to stay low tech while in practice using technology to communicate with, as you pretty much had to these days. I wondered what Desiree would do with the Discordian information I was putting out on the blog. She read the blog avidly on you. And I had begun to lead her quite the merry dance there, as she was very impressionable and terribly competitive, I found, and got ideas from topics I posted about on the blog. A couple of my posts about her made it into the Fnord Agency's pages of the Discordian blog, as she was becoming very Fnordish, which just meant odd and funny in Discordian speak. If I did a post on meditation or Tai Chi, for example, there she was, larger than life, in her tiny room the very next day, showing off her own Tai Chi skills, almost touching the walls, but unable to bend at the knee, with the massive weight of her torso hindering movement as much as the bijou and cockroach-encrusted container that she was attempting to perform the manoeuvre in or when she was telling you all about how meditation was a very dangerous form of self-hypnosis to be avoided in favour of prayer and quiet contemplation or fellowship with like-minded people before launching into what built up quickly to a shouting fit. She didn't seem to know what to do with the Discordian posts, though, and I thought maybe she found the concept hard to wrap her head around. She lacked anything you could describe as a sense of humour herself. Perhaps you need a certain amount of insight into how silly you are in your own human delusions to have that. I don't know. She could understand the idea of groups, though, very well, as she had such an interest in satanic cults and stalker gangs and had been involved in a religious cult on the forum herself and knew how they worked not to mention having had a go at building what was looking suspiciously like a cult on her channel. I had discussed in the new posts how the Discordian groups had organised themselves into groups by topic and I'd posted screenshots of the group logos to illustrate this. There were several religious interest groups, for example, organised by titles suggesting New Age, Thelema, Modern Satanic, and theosophical type religions, for example, having different group assignations for people to gather, some with maybe a hundred members, some more, some less. Then there were groups whose interests seemed more political, organised by belief systems. Then there were puzzle groups, like the Liber Locust group, and others, themselves organised into little clusters of groups, running down the side of the page as you looked at whatever Facebook group you were in, just like how YouTube showed you related content running down the side of the web page when you watched videos. I supposed it was like how guerrilla organisations worked in socialist and fascist politics to organise, 
in that some of the groups wouldn't necessarily know anything about the activities of the other groups as they weren't directly involved, not having the same interests. This military metaphor occurred to me because the original documents I'd found after seeing where the number clue led looked like a military strategy plan of some type in its style of writing. Although I could now appreciate, having read a bit of the Discordian content the group I joined were immersed in, that it had a large amount of humour thrown into the mix to take the dryness off the operations, whatever they were meant to achieve. Telling lies on YouTube in wild Discordian-based narratives was the main takeaway, but they were so organised it was difficult to imagine fun was the only aim. I could see, though, how it might translate into money for monetized channels, since over-the-top content resulted in extra subs and donations. Desiree did, after a week or so, announce that group dynamics was a new topic that she wanted to venture into more, so I gathered she was paying attention to my posts. But when the Gerald Cross email came along suddenly, that was pretty much the only thing she wanted to talk about anymore. She initially had some trouble getting anyone on other channels interested. Fandango said he didn't want to cover it, and Gerald Cross had so far not answered her, but soon she got a reply from All Rock Together, saying he would do a live stream investigation on it, having looked at it. She was over the moon at this news, as his was a bigger channel than hers, even though she now had, incredibly, just over 5,000 subs. He had at least twice that amount, so her story would be big and get a lot of attention to it. She couldn't wait to get to the bottom of the whole business, and was very busy emailing him with her thoughts as they occurred to her, which were sure to be a big help. What a pity the huge channel InfoPill had been deplatformed de as they'd taken All Rock together under their wing to mentor it just before YouTube had unfairly decided they were getting too much attention for their groundbreaking reports for their liking and deplatformed it. Their questioning of the Sandy Hook and 9-11 crashes into the Twin Tower buildings narratives hadn't helped its case, of course, nor the resulting court cases, which left it a high-risk channel for the deplatforming everyone in the truth community had known must be coming soon. All Rock Together was doing okay, despite their mentor channel disappearing from the platform so suddenly. So this was Desiree hitting the big time, with the bombshell of an email arriving so fortuitously. I forget what night it was on, but of course, I tuned in with the rest of them to see what he made of the email. The show arrived. We gathered in chat. Desiree was there, the queen of the moment, taking up residence in chat as the host gave the background to the story. Many knew of Desiree's channel, and although not all were loving her style, as she was a bit bad-mannered for their tastes, they listened to see whether the investigation would develop into anything interesting. The email was read out, the heading examined, the signatories, provenance, etc., all discussed 
and examined over the hour or so the show ran. It was a bit pedestrian, I thought, but thorough enough, even if the conclusion on his part seemed to be that he couldn't figure out either why she'd got the email or what it meant. It said something about waiting a couple of hours for a signal, then going ahead, and that was pretty much it. He thought it looked like it was indeed from Gerald Cross, and he didn't know who the Quinn fellow was, but filled everyone in on who Desiree had said he was. I wondered whether it was really Michael Quinn, then thought that would be a bit obvious if you were playing a joke on her. He'd hardly use his own name and use the letter J for his first name, but it was still odd she hadn't thought of that first. Maybe the lawyer and gangster angle was just more her thing, or maybe they were playing a joke together. I wasn't sure about any of it, but neither was the host of the show, and he wasn't going to start making guesses. He was sure she'd do more to follow up, and if he could help the investigation further, he would. He thanked her for bringing it to his attention and linked his viewers to her channel, showing it briefly on his screen, screamingly bright and flashing with strobe effects on a studio green screen in the window he'd opened in it to show the YouTube tab on. I thought to myself, well, that should keep her happy for a while. How silly of me. I forgot that other people rarely got it right as far as Desiree was concerned, and that although she'd wanted the attention that the bigger channel brought to her channel's content, she wanted it done her way, not his way. The next few nights were a joy for me on her channel, as I didn't get mentioned at all, and he came in for a hilarious basting about how he'd gotten it all wrong in some truly foul language and colourful metaphors. He was a ballless coward, apparently, in avoiding her attempts to contact him afterwards to correct what he'd said in follow-up shows, washing his hands like Pontius Pilate or Judas instead, after deliberately getting it all wrong, after her spending so much valuable time telling him all about the email and what it meant wasting her valuable quilting time, costing her money, money which she should sue him to get back, really, and might yet. That email's importance and significance was something he'd missed entirely. Idiot that he was, its importance in breaking open the whole Q thing to reveal the identity of Q and who the patriot was that worked so closely with President Trump. We learned a few nights later that she'd been ringing the host's house since she was now berating him for living with his mother as well as his girlfriend. Imagine, she jeered with one of her deeply unattractive toothless sneers, a grown man living with his mother. What kind of a ballless coward gets his mother to answer the phone, she screamed at us and won't come to the phone himself like a man would. It was comedy gold, and several people picked up on it, and her channel got more subs, since they wanted to hear what else shocking she would say about the host of the show she'd managed to get interested in examining the email. I made a short humorous video myself, calling it something like ballless wonder, 
and showing the shouty bit where her face was twisted with hatred for the guy that dared undermine the importance of the email by not following instructions to the letter. Lots of YouTubers got into comments to laugh about it and recount their stories of things she'd said about them as they'd done before. The channel owner put out another video to try to calm her down, which, of course, resulted in a flurry of videos calling him even more names, which people, I think even himself, found very funny indeed, except for the violence of the sentiments and the tone in which they were expressed, which was not funny at all. You got the feeling that there might even be more phone calls and that the phone at that house might have to be left off the hook or turned off before retiring for the night if that household wanted a night's sleep to be guaranteed. One thing was guaranteed. Her name was not to be mentioned again on the All Rock Together channel. It was hoped she would go away eventually if she wasn't mentioned and she'd eventually just go back to selling quilts to some of the subs she kept acquiring, who enjoyed all the drama on her channel, few of whom, it seemed, were put off by the increasing amount of cockroaches crawling all over them and her. An outside hope, anyone like myself who knew her well, could see, as people, including her own family members, who hadn't been in contact with her for over ten years by now, were still getting mentioned on her channel by name as stalkers and murderers. Phony Wars had made a mashup video using the clip of her meltdown and set it to music, putting funky colours in that went perfectly with the music, and it became a favourite clip of everyone on the channel for a while. I hadn't been over there for a while, since Terence and Co. had spoiled the atmosphere somewhat for me, but had dropped by again because of this clip making me laugh so hard. And I was approached again by Terence, who wanted to know, was I still having trouble with her trolling me or her subs? He insisted he needed to talk to me about it and persuaded me to talk to him on Twitter in a direct message instead of in chat, as he wanted to tell me something privately. I said, no, Terence, I don't talk to people privately. Remembering the promise I'd made to myself earlier, that I wouldn't ever email anyone, since Desiree had wanted to get into an email discussion with me, trying to sound reasonable about it after she'd found the blog, and I knew it would go very in a very bad direction. I'd felt she'd send all sorts of people, her flying monkeys as I called them, to try to persuade me, just to say I'd threatened her an email, or goodness knows what, on video later. He managed to persuade me somehow, I think just through his persistence in begging me until I said, OK, but just once, say your bit and that's it. When I went into Twitter and direct messaged him after the show, he instantly said he'd be able to get rid of the trolls for me, as he'd said once before to me. Then he said he wanted me to help him play jokes on Desiree too. I said no again, as I wasn't really into deception with people. I said I had to go and said sorry but I have to block you as well giving no explanation for the blocking and left going to bed wondering what he was at but feeling now that my initial instincts about him had been right. He was up to no good. I wondered if he was a discordian and his friends as well. The last thing I thought that night was darn it 
I can't really go into phony wars anymore much now either, as he and his pals aren't going to take kindly to that snub if they think there's something special and everyone wants to be noticed by them or help them play jokes on people. Darn them anyway. <laughs>